Yeah, so uh, Father's Day. Okay, um, I was going to skip Father's Day. For those of you who don't know, um, my dad passed away 12 days ago um, from a traumatic brain injury. He uh, was in the hospital for about two months, never woke up. And so I was like, let's just jump into our summer series. I really want to skip Father's Day this year. Um, but then uh, I realized that you know, my dad, um, he made Father's Day great for me. Uh, a lot of people, some of us here have had really bad dads. Um, some of us feel like we're bad dads. Uh, and I, I think it would, it, it's honoring to my dad, David, uh, to, to show um, on this day what a biblical father looks like because he was one. Um, and so I won't talk too much about him today, but we, I, I do want you to understand that uh, in a lot of ways this is a tribute um, not just to him, but to a lot of you uh, who have really made a commitment to be uh, great fathers. And in some ways, I, I hope it's a challenge, too. I hope there's some things here we look at and we're like, oh, maybe I could use a little work here. But basically, this is um, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what kind of God James thinks uh, God is, his, what God's fatherhood is like. And then we're going to see that we can actually imitate that. There's an analog to how we can live um, to be like, to imitate the love that God the Father has for us. And so this is uh, one of the most beautiful passages in the New Testament. Uh, let's read it together. Um, every good act of giving, every perfect gift comes from above, from heaven. These gifts come down from the Father of heavenly lights, for whom there's no change or shifting shadow. He chose to give us birth by his true word, Jesus. And here is the result. We are like the first harvest of everything God created. Um, let's just, let's just uh, pick apart. This is a little, it's, it's poetic language. Uh, James, James uh, he's a wisdom writer. And so a lot of what he says throughout the book of James is, is very poetic, a lot of metaphors, and very beautiful. But it's helpful to understand what they're trying to communicate. And so the first thing to notice is that God gives great gifts. Um, every good act of giving, every perfect gift, that word perfect is, uh, it really means uh, reaches its maturity, has reached its goal. Every gift that does what, what, what the goal of the gift is meant to do, that's uh, from God, okay? Because there's lots of gifts we give in our lives uh, that, are, that don't meet um, the goal of the gift. So like a lot of times for a lot of our youth here, you're all a bunch of spoiled brats, Okay, and that's because your parents just keep showering on you all these gifts you don't need. And they don't accomplish what they want uh, the gifts to accomplish. Instead, when God gives a gift, it accomplishes everything God wants for it. And, and what is, uh, who, who is this God? He's the father of heavenly lights for whom there's no change or shifting shadow. Uh, this is... Um, this, part of this is to understand is we need to know how uh, the Jewish people kind of saw the universe um, because they're talking about the heavenly lights, right? Um, and the heavenly lights are, are a lot of different things. There's the sun, there's the moon, there's stars. So uh, next slide, take a look at this. Uh, this is how some people think that ancient Jewish cosmology works. Who knows? What we do know is that they definitely made a lot of, um, they made a big deal about the stars and the, the, the heavenly lights, the sun, the moon, um, and one of the things that Jewish people thought was that the, the, the coming of the sun every day, the way that the moon, um, you know, kind of disappears over time and then reappears over time, the way it waxes and wanes, all of those things were an indicator that God created a very orderly, regular, perfect universe, okay? It was, it's all, it's all designed to, to function in a very, uh, uniform way. But, ancient people were also aware 
of wandering stars. Um, the word planet, if you know the word planet, it comes from the Greek planon, which, which means wandering. Planetes is a wandering star. Okay, so our word planet comes from this because ancient people looked up at the sky, and what you're seeing here is uh, Mercury, uh, Mars's retrograde motion. So over time, uh, if you're watching Mars, the planet, um, it doesn't follow the same rules as all of the other stars in the sky. Uh, it, it actually kind of goes back and forth, and we know that now because we know that the sun, the sun is the center of our solar system, and so that uh, changes the way we see the planets um, around us, but the ancient people didn't know that. Moreover, ancient people were aware of things called meteor showers and comets. They would see sometimes, they'd be like, oh no, a star is falling from the sky. Um, and so for ancient people, not only was the universe, uh, the, the, the heavenly lights, not only did it signify order and regularity, but it also signified um, chaos and confusion, stuff that we can't understand. And, and what James is saying is, is God's above all of that. He's the creator of the orderliness, and he transcends the chaos, And so as a result, he knows exactly what kind of gifts to give us. If we look at that text again, notice this. It's a perfect gift. That's because God understands deeply the inner workings of the universe. He created the sky. He created the wandering planets, or the wandering stars. He created it all. He's above that. So when he gives a gift, it's a perfect gift. And so as dads, I think one of the things that we're called to do is give great gifts. And I have an example of something that dads can do to really, uh, to do the right thing by their kids. This is a stock photo. If you, if you Google dad teaching son to shoot, this is the first thing that comes up. Um... The reason I have this here is because it's actually a divisive image. Uh, there's a lot of people in our culture who think that the last thing that would be responsible would be to teach a child to handle a firearm, especially as they're moving into the 21st century. It's not like we go around and we have to, like, you know, shoot a lot of stuff. Like, our animals, are they're butchered mostly humanely, and then the meat comes in packages that we pick up from the butcher. Um, and, you know especially those of us who live in the suburbs, like, it's a pretty safe place. Like, I I mean, I don't know when the last time you were robbed, but so far it's been pretty good for us. And so a lot of people look at this and be like, ah, this is a terrible gift, right? This gift has no sense in our world. Then there's other of you, many of you I know because you tell me, you think that the best gift you can give to a kid is the gift of citizenship, self-defense, and the ability to stop a government, you know, to take over. And so you know that the most important thing you can do for your son is do what Dave Bacon did back in the 90s, which is go to, like, a weird, sketchy, like, gun-building place where people make AK-47s from scrap parts, and then, so there's no serial numbers, and then, and then keep those hidden in your, in your basement so that if the black helicopters come, you'll be ready! Thanks, Dave! If you're lucky, he'll also let you shoot his uh, Russian sniper rifle. And no, I'm not kidding. The point is, is that some of us, we, we, we look at the universe, we look at the way the world's constructed, right? And we think, man, you know, gun, gun ownership and shooting, that's an important thing. And other of us look at the way the universe shaped and how it's, how it's functioning. We're like, you know what, that's kind of the last thing kids really need. But both views indicate that what makes a gift perfect is understanding the world and the context that we're in. 
Right? And so when God looks and gives gifts to his people as, as the divine father, what he's doing, he's like, what kind of gift is going to get this person from where they are to where I want them to be? And so it's not just that God's out there distributing gifts, and it's not just that we as you know, dads go out just tossing gifts. Our job is to find the right gift. Dads don't just give gifts, they give the right gift. And so that should bring up a couple of questions for us. Dads, I mean, what do our, what do our families really need? And just because you don't have kids doesn't mean you're not a father uh, in this congregation. Uh, if you are in any relationship with people who are younger or older than you, um, as a male, then you are in the father zone. And so the question is not, not, should I give gifts? Of course, every dad wants to give gifts. What's the right gift to take my family from where they are to where they need to be. What's the right gift to get my son or my daughter from where he or she is to where he or she ought to be? Let's just go back to the text. Let's uh, skip the, um, the numbered things. All right, well, let's see what God did. First, he says, uh, James says he's going to give every perfect gift, and then he's going to give us an example, okay? And the first thing he says is he says he chose to give us birth. Okay, now that's not, uh, James is not talking about um, the action of childbirthing, okay? What James is talking about is spiritual birth, new life. It's, uh, and this is the first thing that God gives to Christians. He says, I am going to give you new life. Now that's not something that we can do as regular dads, right? We can't go and be like, live. I guess we could. If you're in like the hospital, that's what you should do. When your wife's giving birth, go to the hospital room and be like, live! See if that helps. My experience says no. <laughs> but that, that's not uh, the kind of, of birthing that, that, that James is thinking about when he's thinking about what kind of, of birth God gives. God gives us new, fresh life. And you know something? Human beings, we're hardwired, actually, uh, to, to be attracted, um, to be interested in new life. Not just life in general, but new life. For example, look at these two pictures. I mean, do you hear that? Oh, oh, little, little bunny gonna have a little corn. Oh, little koala friend. Did you know that when koalas grow up, they'll rip your face off? It's a true fact. They're like they're they're vicious creatures. They're horrible. Um, there's a Netflix show about a girl who raises koalas or saves them. And she's constantly like, she hugs them, but then she has to get away. You can only hug them when they're eating. As soon as they're done, they'll just claw you up. Rabbits may be the most disgusting pets you could possibly own. We had a couple of rabbits when I was a kid. Um, we were talking about them yesterday. Uh, two litters of rabbits are famously good at procreating. And uh, I don't know what my parents were thinking, but they didn't separate um, Floppy and whoever the other one was. And so uh, twice we had to go to Target with a box filled with little bunnies and give them away to the people who were leaving Target for a dollar. That was, that was, Mission, that was Mission View in the 90s. That would never, that would never happen anymore. But anyway, uh, the, the, the problem with rabbits is that um, they, they defecate and urinate almost constantly. Um, and if we, we had a hutch for them, and we used, back when people had newspapers, we, um, we had newspapers in the bottom of the hutch, and, and within like three days, four days, those things would be like you would pass out just walking by them. And it was my job to like, 
scrub, scrub, scrub. I hated those rabbits. They suckered me in. So cute. And then they grew up and became monsters. The point is, is that human beings, uh, we naturally, uh, we, we gravitate towards not life, but new life, fresh life. Um, you know, we, if you, I think objectively, like, babies are not that good looking. I mean, how many babies have you said, like, in your heart of hearts, you're like, gorgeous. Most of the time, you're like, ooh. Or that's just, maybe that's just me. That's fine. <laughs> Dashboard confessional. I hate babies. Okay. Uh, I don't hate babies. Um, I'm saying, though, that we, we, we are naturally attracted to fresh, new iterations of life. And that's why when the first thing that James points out about, about God is that he gives us new life, resurrected, God, eternal, divine life in Christ. Well, we can't do that as dads, but there's one thing that we can do that brings about fresh iterations of life in the lives of our family. Next slide. The reason God has to give us fresh life is because our, our natural life is corrupted. God has a set of standards and rules that, that God has set up that we're called to live into, a way of being um, that, that human beings fail at, and, and ultimately God even just scraps rules and says, here's the kind of human being I want you to be like Jesus and live into that. The point, though, is that there's a standard that God has set. God's like, this is what life is supposed to be like for you. You can't measure up, so I'm going to give you fresh life for free. Just believe. Well, similarly, dads, we can set up environments that have real rules and real standards that we have expectations for, for our our kids. And when we do have those, we can be guaranteed absolutely 100% certain that they're going to fail epically. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but no one in this world can make me more upset than my kids. They go from being like the most amazing little humans to just ripping my heart out of my chest in the space of five minutes. And that's, of course, what we did to God. That's what we do to God. And every time God says, I'm going to make a way back for you. And so that's the next thing in your notes. Dad's... We keep real standards, but we also forgive. So God, he first gives us new life, and we can live into that, imitate that by by keeping standards and forgiving. But then how does God do it? Well, um, James says this. He says he does it by his true word. I capitalized word there because obviously he's talking about Jesus, that, that, that God didn't just create life. He, he, he gave us this life by giving something of himself, right? In, in Christ, God gives himself to the world, gives himself into our power and control. There's, there's the grief of lo- and loss of the second person of the Trinity that the Father endures. There's also the experience through the second person of the Trinity of the rejection of humanity, of, of, of the torture and death of the Son, God doesn't do uh, fixing us or healing us in a really easy way. God picks the hardest, most difficult, most painful way. Got a picture here of uh, Dick Winters. I try to I try to mention him once every year and a half or so. 
Um, especially now that the greatest generation is almost entirely gone. Um, there's so few World War II veterans left. I think, I think Windsor has made it to like 96 or something like that. He was old. Uh, but he's the subject, uh, or the main subject of that band of brothers that came out um, in, two, in the 2000s. And if you've read the book, it's a, it's a fascinating book. Uh, Dick Winters was um, in charge of 101st Airborne. He, was, uh, he started out as lieutenant, eventually um, retired as a major. But he was um, at D-Day, and he, and he survived with his unit all the way through um, the, the European theater. And um, he's, his, his tactics are taught today, still today, at um, military colleges because he was a, kind of a brilliant leader. One of the interesting things about Dick Winters is not that he was just like a really great leader um, and that he was really smart about war and all those things, although that's, that's all true. What made Dick Winters special was that his men revered him. And the reason that his men revered him is because he had a policy. And he said to his guys before D-Day, before they <laughs> parachuted behind enemy lines, um, in 1944, he said to them, I will never ask of you something that I'm not willing to do myself. And he kept that promise. He, won't, he never talked about it in his interviews, but um, the men who served with him would say things like, um, and you have a picture there from... Uh, uh, go, go back, Marilyn. The picture there on the uh, right is uh, from this, the miniseries, um, episode five, Crossroads, where uh, they're, they're asked to spearhead an attack. And um, all of Winter's men are hunkered down because there's machine guns firing on them and all this stuff. And, uh, and he's at the back because he's the, he's the commander. And so he, he inches his way to the front uh, while all the bullets flying and whatnot. And, um, and he says, okay, Follow me. And so he jumps up, and his men tell the story years later. He jumps up, and by himself, he charges the enemy stronghold because the rest of his troops are too scared. And so for a few seconds, every gun is trained on Dick Winters, firing at him. And his men, looking at this, become ashamed of themselves. And they see this is, this is courage. This is somebody who's willing to go for How can I not follow this man? And so the entire unit, Easy Company, they all rise the same. Just They all experience the same feeling at the same moment. And they charge behind Winters. And somehow, miraculously, he's preserved from any injury. And they take the hill. I think every one of us as, as men would love to be able to say, follow me. The reason people follow Dick Winters is because he never asked anything, any sacrifice that he hadn't already made himself. He had credibility with his men. And we as dads and, and as men in the church, we have to have credibility with our people. Just like God gave of himself in Christ to the world, dads ask no sacrifice. We won't first make ourselves. And then uh, I think maybe my favorite part of this verse, or these verses, uh, is at the very end, where James says, and he's, he's following a little bit of Paul's language here, he says, we are like the first harvest, the first fruits of everything God created. 
Well, what this means is that God's, God's got this creation, this world, right? But the world where it is right now is not where God wants it to be. There's a plan going on here, and we're stuck in the middle of it, uh, of sorts. And, but God has a desire. Has a, this is where we're headed. We're headed to Jesus ruling in the kingdom. We're ultimately headed for the new heavens and the new earth. Right now, the world, the creation that we're a part of, it's, 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 it's damaged, it's corrupt, it's broken. But what I'm doing is I'm creating a special set of kids of mine. I'm going to give them birth through my son, and they are going to be an image to the world of who I am and the love that I have for the world. And it's, it's as if God had created all this stuff, and then the very first fruits on the vine, the very first grapes, these beautiful glistening grapes, which show, which foreshadow all of the grapes to come, right? These first sweet, plump, juicy grapes, that's us. That's our life. We are to be this shining beacon of love for God and love for one another. When I was in my 20s, I was an angry person. A lot of things had happened in my life that I thought weren't fair. And they certainly weren't just. And most of my anger, most of my uh, rage was directed towards uh, church. I felt like church people just didn't do it right. And I knew how they were supposed to be, right? I'd, been to, I'd gone to seminary. I've learned a whole bunch of things. I know how church is supposed to be. I know how people, I know how we're all supposed to be. But every time I encounter real human beings in the church, they just, eh, they drive me nuts. And about once a week during that time, we'd, um, Aaron and I would have dinner with my parents and I would be ranting and raving about, you know, whatever was wrong with the world. And my dad had a great line. He said, this is a Davidism. He said, Tom, you can be right or you can have friends. Tom, you can pick your nose and you can pick your friends. But you can't roll your friends up in little salty balls and eat them. It's another classic Davidism. And I mean, I would go off and on. I, didn't, I had no ears to hear at all. I was just, I was just an angry kid. And, uh, and, my, and my dad, he, he would say over and over, Tom, you have to love people. And he wasn't just talking about um, loving the people in the church. I mean, it was that. But he was setting out a standard of what he understood human life to actually be about. The human life is not about being successful. It's not about, you know, achieving this or showing up to that. It's not about um, being up here or down here. It's not about leading a revolution. It's not about a lot of things. What it's really about is loving God and loving people. And he looked at me and he understood, man, there's potential there. He could be a decent human being, but... But you've got to understand what we're here for. You've got to understand what this is about. And 
And looking back, I realized some years ago that those words and that shaping, that vision, um, it took a long time to get in. But it gave meaning and purpose to a 20-year-old who had nothing but bitterness and fear. Just as God, you know, gives meaning and purpose to our lives, saying, look, you're a part of this incredible story. You're my, my beautiful, delicious first grapes. And you're, the, you're, you're a sign of everything that's to come. Live into that. In the same way, Dad, we have an incredible opportunity and power um, in our spheres of influence to show people what meaning and purpose is like, what it's about. They've done a lot of studies uh, because, you know, everyone in the West is concerned that church attendance is plummeting. Um, and, and it's the rise of the nuns, you may have heard this, where uh, most kids, when they um, graduate uh, high school, they go to college, and then they stop going to church. And some of them come back, but most don't. And this is, we've seen this happen uh, primarily in Europe. Europe is where it started, and as with all things, Europe does something, and about 20 to 30 years later, Americans do it. And so Europe has been doing this for about 50 years, and Americans, we're about 20 years into it, uh, where we've started to see the Pew Gallup polls where we know um, more and more that people are abandoning um, religious devotion. And so a lot, of, uh, a lot of research has gone into figuring out what would make it so that, peop- that kids would grow up and, and stick to church. How do you have a sticky faith is one of the trendy ways they'll talk about it. Um, and so they, they started doing all this research where they started asking questions and doing surveys. And over, and, the, and where they did it, they did it first in Europe because Europe is dead, right? Europe's totally post-Christian. Like, it's just they, very few people of faith there. And so they, they did find the people of faith and say, hey, how is it, you know, did your kids come back? Blah, 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 blah. And here's what they found. The single most important factor that will predict whether or not a child remains faithful to God is whether or not their dad attends church. What's funny is they even have studies that show uh, where like the, the mom doesn't, right? In some of the studies where dad goes and mom doesn't, there's actually a better retention rate. <laughs> like, like, like the kids are like, mom doesn't know what she's doing, she's missing out. That's, I mean, it, it's, it's fascinating, and, and we're talking in numbers-wise, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a, stri- a striking statistic, but basically it's somewhere between 33 and 38% of kids whose dads go to church will end up going to church without any other factors. If you just, if you ignore every factor other than simply dad going to church, you are giving your kids a 33 to 38% chance of becoming faithful and devoted to God. Now, I know this is sexist, and so a few of you will be very upset with me. But I really believe there's something about a man's faith, a man's purpose and meaning. When he finds it in God, his kids do too.
and not to lay the guilt on too thick, but the numbers are even more skewed when you select for male children. A young man has a, is 50% more likely to be committed to church if he sees his dad go week in, week out growing up. doesn't apply to pastors, though. All pastors' kids grow up to, grow up to be terrible. So <laughs> There is that. Well, uh, let's, let's look um, just one more time. Um, because there's a lot of us here, uh, and, and again, like I, I'm so grateful uh, for the 40 years that I got to have my dad. Um, he, he was the best absolute best when I was uh, eight every day after school he would play catch with me in the front yard I mean it was like seriously like if you imagine like the 1950s perfect home it's like there he is my mom every day shows up with like an apron a martini as he comes home just the huge you know the normal stuff But I know that a lot of us um, didn't have that experience. I know a lot of us uh, grew up um, and our, our dads weren't a great model. And a lot of you here, you beat the odds. A lot of you guys I know, like you didn't have that kind of, that image, that, that and, and, and God's been gracious and, and has interceded in that and has, has, has given you opportunities um, to see uh, who he is. Hey, did you notice this? You know, the father of heavenly lights for what? For whom there is no turning, no change, no shifting of shadow. Here, here's the deal, friends. I, I, maybe you didn't have a great dad. Maybe your dad made some, some mistakes. But, but here's the deal. Like, God is the only one who doesn't change, right? God's the only one who's got it all figured out and isn't shifting or change. The rest of us males, the rest of us dudes, like, we, we screw up, man. Um, and, and, and things go in and out, and the only constant is change. And, and, maybe, and maybe there's a place in your life where maybe it's time to recognize that maybe your dad wasn't great, but he needs to be forgiven. And there's still a possibility of, of new life there. Or, or maybe you're sitting here and you're like, man, I'm doing a terrible job. <laughs> like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I go to church on Father's Day, that's about it. You know, leader guy gives me a, you know, major, like, beating, like, uh, you're just like us, man. You're just like me. There's change and there's variation, but that also means there's a possibility of something better going forward, right? It means, you know, if, if this God has no change and this God is willing to give us new life in his son, if he's willing to forgive us and pick us up over and over and over again, well, maybe he's willing to do the same thing for you. And maybe uh, the dad you are uh, going forward um, in this church is going to be a different, renewed uh, dad than, than, than was before here uh, today. Because if there's one thing um, we know, it's that um, God's the God of second chances. That's the last thing in your note sheets. God gives every dad a second chance. And this isn't uh, just... You know, for y'all, it's for me too. I mean, I, 
one of the things that's been so sad about uh, saying goodbye to my dad is um, knowing that, you know, my kids, they won't, they won't ever know him the way I did. They won't ever, their, their, their image of a great dad is going to be the flawed, jacked up version that I provide. And I wish to God, I wish to God they could have seen Dave. And so I'm going to need second chances too as I try to keep his legacy alive. As I try to show them what a man is supposed to be like. And I'm very, very grateful that my God gives those out time and time again. Let's pray. Gracious God, we um, confess as men that we're flawed vessels, that we, um, that we make mistakes, that we need second chances, that we... Um, But God, we also confess that you in your good fatherhood, in your goodness to us, you have given us an image, a vision of what real fatherhood is meant to be. I pray, God, that you give us the grace in your spirit, the forgiveness in your son to, to empower us to be that. to be the, the ones who are able to provide um, the first images of purpose and meaning for our kids and for our families. The ones who are, who are able to model like good standards but, but genuine and kind-hearted forgiveness. God will be the ones who lead the way for our family, showing them that we ask nothing of our kids. We won't do ourselves to lead self-sacrificially just as you did in Christ. May we as dads be able to look at our kids in the eyes and our wives and our families and our church friends and say, follow me. Just as I follow Christ. In whose name we pray this Father's Day and every other. Amen.